gather together and get into the Word this morning. I realized uh, as we're going through our series, Christ in the Old Testament, we're taking two years to do this. We're going through the different books of the Old Testament, seeing how Christ was there, Christ was a part of this, or how it points to Christ. We are now this summer going through the minor prophets, looking at Christ in the Old Testament, each of the minor prophets. And I sometimes, if you notice, as we've gone through this series, I've kind of have subcategories or sub-series within this. And I realized this week I should have had these last three sermons, including this one, kind of its own independent sub-series where I, I kind of like these are the three most important messages any preacher should preach. If you recall two weeks ago, we had this kind of foundational one where this is kind of the, the foundational essence of the gospel message. And uh, we used eggs as an example for looking at some of that. And then last week, so that was the foundation that every preacher should know and preach often. Last Sunday was that hope that we have in Christ. And that's something that we desperately need today. The hope that is found only in Christ. And then today is kind of the purpose. What is our purpose in life? So these three are very important. And I encourage you, if you've missed any of the last two, to go back and, and view those. Because these are the three most important messages I think any preacher should be preaching. As we begin today, I want to just ask three questions. We'll kind of briefly look at these three questions. We'll see these again, and at the end, we'll talk about these three questions. So what are you to do after you have been released from captivity, is my first question. I don't know if any of you are like me, but I enjoy watching World War II movies, primarily because my grandfather survived World War II, and whether the European or Pacific theater, I like watching either of those. And often in those movies, when they show captives either that were on different islands, when they're island hopping in the, the Philippine area or in that area, or in the European theater, They'll show different examples of prisoners being set free. And there's one, I couldn't think of which one it is, but there's a certain one where the Jews are set free. All, all the, the Nazis leave quickly and they're kind of just let out. They kind of walk out of the gate and the Allied forces come in and they drive up. And the, the Jewish people, you know, they're like, well, what's, what's happening? They say, you're free. You know, they don't know how to celebrate. And then they ask this question, where are we to go? What are we to do? So what are you to do after you have been released from captivity? Or the other question, after devastation has hit very hard, what are you to do? Most of you have probably seen the videos that happened last Tuesday in Beirut. And if you see those videos of that devastating explosion that happened in the port there, where it was just the crater that's left there is unbelievable. They had some ammonium nitrates about 200,000 pounds, I'm not sure how many, or whatever, tons of ammonium nitrate just all went off and it devastated. And after destruction has destroyed that area, what are they to do? Or the last question here, what are you to do after salvation has come? Now what should your life look like or what should be the focus of your life? After salvation has come, now what? So to do this, I'm going to look at six different words as we go through Scripture. Garden, tent, building, person, people, 
and paradise. So we're going to kind of walk through Scripture as we look at one of the Old Testament minor prophets. So before we do that, let's just take a moment and pray to get our hearts ready for the Word of the Lord. So let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this morning. And I'm glad that we're able to gather together and we have multiple services and we're kind of spread out and we're, we're doing our best that we can to care for one another. And I'm glad that we could gather this morning. And it is not by chance that we are here to hear this message. So God, I pray that you would allow us to be willing to be shaped and moved by your Spirit as we respond and alter our lives in accordance with what you've called us and the purpose of our life. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are going through the minor prophets. We are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and we've been going through Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and now we're at Haggai. So if you get there, if you can turn to Haggai, we're there. And we have this phrase that we have for the minor prophets. And it's the summary of this. The minor prophets show us a glimpse of God's wake-up call. So each of the minor prophets have their unique way of showing people of their time, a specific group of people, this is the wake-up call that we have for you. But it's not just that. It's They have this wake-up call, but there's also this hope of God's love that will not let us go, which is ultimately found in Christ. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to begin in the beginning and move through the Bible to the end of the Bible. God created the world and, and made creation as we know. He spoke and it happened. And the beauty of creation isn't just the beautiful trees that we have and and the harvest time, and the fall time that we have. It's the mountains and all that. But out of all of creation, the greatest thing that was created was humanity. Us. Because we are created in the image of God. We are created in the image of God, and we have this capacity to have relationship with Him, to be with Him. In the beginning, man walked with God. The glory and the presence of God was with man in the garden. Beautiful. But then sin entered. Sin came. And there was devastation between God and man. So Adam and Eve were then driven out of the garden. So we had this place, this garden where the dwelling of God was with man. Now sin came and they were driven out of the garden and the fellowship and the presence of God was broken. And the glory of God departed from them. In the rest of Genesis, it's interesting that God at times shows up, meets with people, dwells with them for a short time, but it's not a lasting presence. He doesn't dwell with His people. He shows up and then we move to Exodus. We spent two months, I think, on Exodus alone in our series. Why? Because Exodus is that great chapter. It's the Gospel book in the Old Testament. If you recall, they needed to deliver. A deliverer came. And by the blood of the Lamb, they were released. And they're on the way to the Promised Land. That's the message of salvation that we live. We needed a deliverer, and Jesus came. And by His blood, the blood of the Lamb, we've been released. We're on our way to the Promised Land. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 are that gospel message in the Old Testament. Salvation is there. And then, a few chapters later, 
after 14 in 19 is this great ceremony in which the people make this covenant with God kind of like a marriage ceremony they have this great covenant where God says I will be your God and the people are like yes we will be your people and it happens and then chapter 20 comes the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And again, a lot of people get the Old Testament wrong. They think, well, in the Old Testament, how are they saved? By doing good things, the law, by following the law. Remember, salvation came in chapter 14, and chapter 20 was obedience. First comes, if you look at this on the wall there, knowing God, then worshiping God, then out of that, then obedience. But what was the goal of salvation? We got chapters 12, 13, and 14. This great picture of this departure and freedom, walking on dry. But what's the goal of salvation? What is the prize of the Old Testament concept? What is the prize of salvation? I believe the presence of God is the prize of the Exodus event. You see, Exodus 14 came, salvation came, but there's more chapters all the way up to chapter 40. In fact, the law comes, the Ten Commandments, and then Moses kind of breaks it down to more, explaining some of that. And then the rest of Exodus is this, the anticipation and building up of the tabernacle. So we move from a garden to the tabernacle. And here is where they would have this place where God would come so they built the tabernacle and as soon as the tabernacle was built it wasn't complete why was it not complete it wasn't complete until God's presence was there the main goal of having the tabernacle wasn't just the tabernacle the main goal was to have the glory of God be with them so just as they traveled They walked around and the cloud was a symbol and remembering so they knew that God was present with them. They built the tabernacle. So I got my kids' little tent thing. And some of you have little ones and they crawl around. And So they built this. It wasn't like this. They built this little tabernacle which they could kind of take apart and move to the next place as they traveled on. This is the place where God's glory and presence would dwell. It was a visible place symbol a manifestation of the invisible God in fact in Exodus chapter 40 if you got your Bibles you can see this Exodus 40 right at the end they built this tabernacle everything's built up and they're all anticipating what's about to happen Exodus 40 verse 34 says this then the cloud covered the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle Once in the beginning, God walked with man and His presence and His glory dwelt with man. Sin came, it was broken. Now they've got the tabernacle in which the glory of God dwells. His Shekinah, His dwelling glory is there. The visible Shekinah glory is in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a symbol of a limited presence of God it's very limited in fact they'd take it down and move it to the next place and then God would dwell in the holy of holies but it was limited why because the story is not done moving forward to David David becomes king 
And as most kings do, they like to establish and build things. And he establishes Jerusalem as the capital city. And he begins to build his great cedar palace for himself. And he builds up this great cedar palace. And God kind of goes, hey, what about my place? It's just this rickety tent. He doesn't say rickety tent. He's like, I'm dwelling in this, and you've built a cedar palace. And David's like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Let me build something great for you. And God's like, you know what? You're not going to be the one that builds the temple. It will be your son. So from a tabernacle, they upgraded to a palace. Now, I just have Lincoln Logs. I don't have cedar from Lebanon like they had. You know, this is kind of fancy here. But they built this kind of great temple how many of you have Lincoln Logs? Some of you, okay. Some of you, maybe the kids. It even had gold, so I'll put my gold ring on there so you realize, okay, yeah, there was gold in the, the temple. And they had this upgrade from a tabernacle to a temple. And Solomon's temple was beautiful and glorious. Now the dwelling of God was not just in this tabernacle, it's in this beautiful temple. In fact, it's interesting, Solomon says this. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. He's basically saying, guess what? God doesn't need a tent. He doesn't need a temple to dwell in. God is greater than that. He says, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. So now we move from a garden to a tabernacle to a temple. Now in Scripture we move to the minor prophets. As you know, most of the minor prophets, in fact, we've got a slide here to show you. The minor prophets, most of them spoke before the exile happened. They were warning them, please, go back to this covenant you made with God. You've broken it. Quit falling into idolatry. For, you know, get rid of your sins, forsake that, and turn to God. The wake-up call. But as we know, they did not wake up, and then they were taken into captivity and as you see in the map, I've kind of got arrows showing the Assyrian, the Babylonian area. They were taken into captivity. Only a few of the prophets spoke during that time. But as you notice, the last three here that we've got, or the last three that we have in our Bible of the minor prophets, spoke after it was all destroyed. So they had this great temple. And they did not obey God, and they were taken into captivity. And then destruction happened everyone was taken to captivity the temple was destroyed most of the prophets spoke prior to the exile but we have Haggai here speaking after after they have been released from captivity after they have finally been freed now he speaks to them after destruction now he has words let's go to the book of Haggai. When they return from exile, what are they going to do? Remember, that was my first question I asked. What are they to do after they have been freed from captivity? Take a look at Haggai chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin. So what they did is they got back to Jerusalem 
and they started building their own homes. They started getting panels from Menards. Okay, Menards wasn't around. They went around, and they got all the stuff they could to build up their own home, build up their own places, while this was happening with the house of the Lord. Nothing was happening. Destruction was there, and they didn't take care of it. So Haggai is reminding the people the value of the temple. They got busy with their own homes and forgot about the glory of the Lord. Instead, they started getting busy with their own activities. So he reminds them the value of the temple and the covenant that they made. And the temple was the symbol of the covenant. And then they began restructuring of the temple, reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed. And as they began working on its foundation, they started getting the foundation back together. They started piecing it together and adding to it. And then, here's what happened. The older people begin to cry. Not because they were tired. Not because they were old. Not because, oh, these young, young people are outworking us. Not, it's not why. They began to cry because they realized when they were working on this, they realized, you know what? This will never be as great as Solomon's temple. Oh, the beauty and the glory of it. It was wonderful. What we're doing, it will never meet up to the standards that once was there. It will lack the glory. But Haggai reminds them of something very important. So let's take a look at chapter 2. Chapter 2, starting with verse 5. Here's the Lord speaking. This is what I have covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, talking to his people, and my spirit remains among you. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and the desire of all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord. So God says this, what you're building right now, this temple, it will even have greater glory. And in the future, more glory will come in the temple. Again, we went from a garden to a tabernacle to a temple. And God is saying, in the future, something greater will happen. Now, as we're moving through Scripture, we ask this question, what is the message of Jesus that resonates with the temple and God's presence? God's glory in the temple awaited and needed fulfillment. And that fulfillment was found in a person. We move from garden to tabernacle to temple, now to person. The temple or sorry, the tabernacle anticipates the temple, and the temple anticipates Christ. So take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. The tabernacle and temple. They were visible symbols of God's dwelling among His people. They were foreshadowing of Christ. 
They're pointing to Christ. So John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jump down to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling. He tabernacled amongst us. He was present with us. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the One and the Only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The promise of a greater glory in Haggai saying, guess what? God said, guess what? My glory will be even greater than what you can imagine is fulfilled in Christ. God took on human flesh and came to dwell among us so we could behold His glory and receive His peace. Jesus reveals that He is the personal embodiment of the temple. In fact, go to the next chapter. John chapter 2, verse 19. Here He goes and kind of does some stuff in the temple clears it out, cleans it out, and he says this. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. He wasn't talking about that temple. He was talking about himself. This is the embodiment of God. He's God. Christ himself is the new temple. And the temple is no longer needed. When Christ died, what happened to the big curtain in the temple? It was torn. No longer did you need this holy of holies in the temple and a priest to do this. He was that. But there is more. You know, we could stop right there. We're looking at Christ in the Old Testament. We're looking at the glory of God. Okay, there's going to be a greater glory in the temple. Jesus is the embodiment. He is God. But there's more. We move from a garden to a tent, a tabernacle, to a temple, to a person. Now, to a people, the people of God. Christians themselves are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is profound. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting with verse 19, it says this, Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you receive from God. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. God walked with man, dwelt with him in the garden. Sin came, broke it. Then we moved from a tabernacle to a temple. And then Jesus came. Fully God, fully man, dwelt among us. Now, when he departed, God dwells within us. As his body, the church, we are the temple. And this says, this is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling which God lives by his spirit. What is the prize in the Old Testament? What is the, the, the goal and the prize of salvation? God dwelling among them. For us today, the presence of God, Christ in you, is the prize of your Exodus event. The beauty of salvation 
is that God is dwelling in you. But we don't end there. We move from a garden to a tent or tabernacle, from a, then to a temple, to a person, to a people, and we end with the word paradise. Go to Revelation chapter 20. We did this last week. We'll look at this again. Revelation 20. And again, some of your subtitles that you have, the editors in the, the Bibles have kind of put different headings for different parts of and paragraphs of Scripture. Satan's doom. The dead are judged. Remember the day of the Lord. After God's enemies have been defeated. Look at chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Jump down to verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city. Remember, we moved from garden to the tabernacle to temple, and the temple is so important. It says, I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. There will be a day when the ultimate goal of salvation is that we will be able to dwell in the full presence of God Almighty. And His glory will be the radiant light within heaven. Now let's end with this. Let me go back to those questions I asked in the beginning. What are you to do after you have been released from captivity? What are you to do after destruction, total devastation has come to your life and now you get to go back? Or this, what are you to do after salvation has come? We learn from the prophet Haggai this, that the people, when they were finally released, when they finally got to go back to their home, they had their priorities wrong. They're all about building up their own kingdom, building up their own homes. Go, you know, if you just bought some paneling for your bathroom or whatever, don't worry, I'm not talking about that. But they were so excited about their place, they forgot about the main focus of the glory of God. They had their priorities mixed up. For us today, often we have our priorities mixed up. God's glory, the fame of His name, all worship, that should be our main focus and our top priority. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first that, then all the other things will fall in place. Here's the line I said, I, I wrote down, I said, do all you can to magnify the cross and the beauty of Jesus. The goal in your life, the top priority, should be that you bring all glory 
to God. That is the purpose of our existence. The goal is not to bring honor and glory to yourself, but it's to bring honor to God. Back in Haggai chapter 2, verse 7, he says, I will bring all fame and glory and honor to the nations. They will know. And guess what? Our job is to be a part of that. Don't be self-absorbed. Instead, make the worship of God your number one priority. We as evangelical Protestants, we modern today, we don't really get into the creeds. We don't get into some of the, the confessions of faith, which I think is sometimes un- unfortunate because some of the things that are written are just amazing. The closest we may get to is the Apostles' Creed. One of my favorites, and it still is very popular, is the Westminster Shorter Confession of Faith. And in this, they say this great line. What is the chief end of man? What's the goal of mankind? What is our purpose? What is the chief end of man? What should you be living about? What should it be about? Man's chief end, man's goal, man's purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We find this in a small little book in the Old Testament. Get your priorities right. Two weeks ago I talked about the foundation of life. Jesus is our substitute. Last week we have a hope and we're going home someday. Amen? But before that day comes, our number one goal to live for the glory, for the fame, for the worship of God. Do all that you can for His glory. And He's placed you in unique places. He's now allowed you to be a grandparent, not so you can retire and build up your kingdom, so you can invest into your children and grandchildren for the glory of God. Live so people know about Jesus, for He is greatly to be praised. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this message found in Haggai. There's many things in each of these minor prophets, but I love how people, the elderly at that time, were in mourning because they wanted the glory of God to be the main focus. And the temple they were building would not reach to that standard. And I love how you, through your prophet, said the words that a greater glory is coming. And that points to Jesus. You dwelt among us. Your glory walked this earth. And it blows me away that now your glory, your dwelling is within your children. Your presence. God, I pray that you would help us to live for the fame of your name so all honor goes to you. In this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing our last?